0: I'm a very confident front runner for Caddy for 33 years, 145 wins now, and that's the best win I've ever had. I have no idea what you have. I don't know. How are we going to count all the shots? You, I, I can't keep track.
1: Suck. Damn
0: it! I don't think he's pleased.
1: Of course he would. That's, that's a particularly stupid question. It's they are Open. Of course, we want to play at the weekend.
2: Now we've got a very special interview for you on this afternoon's podcast. It is the great Ewan Murray. Of Sky Sports Former (laughs) professional as well Look at you laughing When I say the great Ewan Murray
0: (laughs) No one's ever introduced me like that
2: (laughs) It's the passable Ewan Murray everyone You're welcome Ewan (laughs) So listen You're talking to a Golf Mad audience here And they have spent like me Many, many, many hours Watching golf with you So it's lovely to have you on I wonder do you keep track of How many hours broadcasting you've done
0: Uh, I don't. Uh, I just look forward to the next one, basically, and what's gone is gone.
2: Well, listen, there's so much to talk to you about. We know you work with Sky, obviously. You're also a former uh, professional across the 70s and 80s. You had managed to hit scratch by 13 years of age, I was reading. Mm -hmm. So clearly, golf came naturally to you. And I know your father was a professional, maybe five miles west of Edinburgh. So, you were one of those kids, one of those lucky kids who effectively spent all hours on a golf course and sunset on a golf course and practising your chipping and your putting and yeah, falling in love with this wonderful game.
0: You've got that 100% right. Uh, my father was pro a club called Baberton, which is on the west side of Edinburgh. And I did from the age of four or five, I chipped and putted. And when I was allowed out in the practice range, I went out there. and Certain hours I was allowed in the golf course. I went out there. It was the most wonderful childhood. I, I couldn't have asked for more because I was with my parents all the time uh, or certainly not too far away from them. They obviously knew where I was. And uh, the long summer days up there in, in Scotland were, were spent at Babbitton, uh, beginning the game of golf and a bit later on, uh, East Lothian, not too far away. So some magnificent golf courses down there. I was a junior member of Dunbar and obviously played at North Berwick and Gullen and lung or Spindy, all places like that. So a better childhood, uh, I don't think I could have ever wished for.
2: Was your father very hands-on, Ewan, in terms of coaching you?
0: Yes, uh, he was very much hands-on. He was a, a good coach. A lot of the top amateurs in Scotland would uh, come to Baberton and, and have lessons from my father. So he had a very good reputation uh, as a coach. He was also a good coach in the sense he never pressured you to to do anything, but he kept his eye on you. And as you were growing up, and obviously your body was changing, you were getting taller and beginning to fill out a bit, he would uh, take all that into account. and, And when he passed away, he passed away early, passed away at 62 years of age. And I have to say that, that when that happened, uh, a little bit of me, I think probably went with him.
2: Mm. He's too indelibly linked with your golf game.
0: Without question, yeah. and the joys uh, when, you, when you look back as you as you get older into the autumn of your life, the, the joys of growing up and playing golf with your father. my mother was also a golfer as well. Uh, to, to be able to look back uh, at the times you spent on the golf course. Uh, as well as then being parents, proper parents uh, in your house and schooling, etc. I was uh, tremendously fortunate uh, and I'm well aware of that. Mm.
2: So scratch at 13, there's obviously natural talent there. Tell us a bit about your game and I I suppose you must have even realised yourself, God, here at 13, 14, 15 and starting to win competitions as a junior, that this game is coming easier to you than most.
0: That's a very good question because I I don't say it to many people, but golf did come easy to me. I I, I felt playing golf um, wasn't difficult. It was only when I grew up and became a bit wiser I realized just how difficult it was. <laughs> and I had a I had a putting problem from a very young age. I was a great putter like most kids are, and then one day I had this this twitch with. Uh, my hands where the club collided with the ball, and I couldn't work that out. I, I couldn't understand that, but I remember where it was, when it was, what day it was, what time it was, and I, I battled through that. To be honest, uh, as, as a professional golfer, and and sometimes I got over it, and I putted reasonably well, and, and other times it would come back, and I got to the stage that because of the problem I had with the butter, that I was no longer playing to win because I didn't think I could win. It was a weakness. Um, And I finished playing uh, at 35.
2: What age were you when that twitch first happened?
0: 15. Uh, It was May. Uh, The course was Long Nedry, which always had the best greens uh, in East Lothian. It was always at Long Nedrick, so it wasn't the greens. It was early morning. I was off at 8.20. I had my second shot to about five feet, and, and it happened, uh, and I, I didn't know what it was, and it went on all day. And, and I remember I used to keep stats then as a, as a young kid, which was probably unheard of then, because we're talking about back in 1970. And I, I hit 17 greens in regulation and shot 71, 72, which mm, painful. was probably five shots too much per round. Um, And I must have got rid of it fairly quickly because I made the final of the British boys when I was 15 and and I was tiny, I was four foot ten. And I was putting normally then. Uh, So I must have got over it fairly quickly. And then it came back and and I had to devise all sorts of ways to try and get over it, a bit like Bernard Langston throughout his career, uh, split hands and... Eventually, the long putter, but uh, it it was always a problem. And in 1971, I won the Scottish Boys with my right hand six inches from the shaft, uh, from the head, and the left hand at the top. It was the same story when I won the Stroke Play four months later, Um, and also when I was playing in the World Championship in San Diego, it was the it was the same thing then, but. Then that passed, um, but it, it was always there in the back of my mind. It was always there, and I felt so stupid. I felt uh, I felt guilty at not being able to find the strength to get over it uh, because there's no reason for it. Uh, you've been doing it all your life, and all of a sudden it happens. So it's something I still think about today. And, and if I was to go out now with you on the putting room, it would still be there. It's it's ingrained in me because I never I never really worked out the formula to defeat it. I remember as a pro, I won at um, Royal Dornoch, the, the Northern Open, and I was five shots in front coming up the 18th, so there was no pressure. And I had a couple of drivers on on the green to about five or six feet, so I had a putt to win by six shots, and the putt finished eight inches short and four inches wide. Um, and absolutely no pressure at all. I could have had five putts and still won. So it wasn't, I felt the pressure. It was just something that had happened to me and I needed to find a way out of it. But I hate to say, I hate to admit, I didn't.
2: Mm. Oh, the embarrassment at times.
0: With Yeah, without question, embarrassment of, of putting with your right hand six inches above the head of the putter. I mean, that was embarrassing enough, but it was the only way I could actually get the ball in the hole from a foot or 15 inches. From 10 feet and outside, I was probably pretty much like any other golfer. But the nearer I got, and and it got to a stage when even when you knocked in a a six-inch putt, it it didn't go in the middle of the hole. You, You didn't really have control over it. And I played with Bernard Langer when he was 18 in Holland. Uh, the Dutch Open, and the first nine holes, he hit eight greens in the regulation and hit the par five in two, and he was at in forty four. He actually took a divot at the green from four feet at the ninth. And I remember going into the press center, speaking to some of my pals there, and said, "I've just seen a guy who's probably the best golfer I've seen, um, but you're never going to hear of him." Mm-hmm. But you know, as we move on. But 46 years uh he's had 40 wins as uh as a, a senior golfer and he's he's got a couple of majors and many others tucked away in there so mm-hmm. bernard had the he had the strength uh, and the courage to get through it and i'm ashamed to say that i did
2: well no i don't i think shame is uh, a bit much do you remember speaking to your father and saying that i don't know what the hell this is but it feels like there's an electric eel in my hand and these putts, what do I do? Because I'm sure it was like, oh, my God, don't even say the word. Don't even say the word.
0: <laughs> um, my father told me when I was 12 or 13 and knocking in pats from all over the place that I needed to sort my putt and stroke out. He said that uh, the putter went outside and the way back and inside and the way through. And he says, if you're not careful, you'll have a problem with that. But as a young kid, I was knocking pats in from all over the course. You know, just like any young kid does, because he he doesn't think; he just aims, looks at the line, and hits it. So it happened on that morning, um, and as I say, I managed to get over it two or three times, but mm. uh, in the end, it,
2: it proved insurmountable. Wow! So, like, if I was to throw a theory at you, then it's that there was maybe something suspect in your technique that you could compensate for with the joys of youth. And then when you were struck by it, that initial moment of horror was almost so deep that it left a scar. And so something was always there, is it? Because it sounds like you tried different techniques afterwards. So there is a certain mystery with this very strange thing in golf from four or five <laughs> feet in. You know, uh, uh, to quote Ben Hogan, it should be worth half a shot.
0: Yeah, and I, I got a put the from Orville Moody who won the the US Open in the late 60s in Houston and I was playing with him down in uh, Columbia and he saw that I wasn't just as as good as I should have been on the green and he said look, take this putter because I've got three or four of them at home and it's the one that um, a lot of players use up the inside of the left forearm like Kutcher has been using it Um, and a or Shuffley had a, a go at it recently And there's one or two others as well. Um, Zalatoris has got it up there. And that got me through 10 years. Right. uh, Because whatever anyone says, that putt is anchored. It's anchored into your left forearm. So as long as you just move your left forearm to the right and to the left, Mm. then you should be okay. I wouldn't say I was perfect, but I did manage to win uh, the Zambian Open in AT, that was against a strong field in a good course. And I won in uh, Nigeria, which was a big money tournament more than anything else. Played on grass and sand. But mm. it, it got me through these. And then my, when my father died the following year, I don't know, I would kind of lost the resolve then to, to mm. find, find out why this happened and, and what I could do about it. And could I get over it? So that's the history of it. Uh, mm-hmm. Not very pleasant, I know, but that's the truth.
2: You must have been a great ball striker then. The rest of your game must have been very good because, as you mentioned, a pro, 70s and 80s, 1980, as you mentioned there, Zambian Open, £25,000, no less, in, for that Nigerian win in eighty four, which I read you bought a house with as well. So you were doing quite nicely considering you had this handicap of sorts. Ball striking then, was that your forte, you and?
0: Well, as I, I said earlier, I never found golf terribly difficult as a youngster. Probably because my father's eyes were always on me. I was never allowed to get into bad habits. I believed everything that that he said uh, and asked me to do. Mm. So, it and because I started at three or four, it, it was like picking up your knife and fork. Uh, I just didn't find it that difficult. It, Golf got very difficult, obviously, as you grew up and, and you began to have an adult mind. But, but in these days, it was just reaction. It was put the tee in the ground and the club behind the ball and and reaction. So, And if you win, often enough, which I, I did a lot of, as a 14, 15 and 16-year-old, mm. then you expected to go out and win. Mm. You weren't frightened of winning. Uh, you were, You had no fear of failing. So... Golf was a relatively easy game to me. It was only later I realised how difficult it was.
2: Yes. And so your swing, for instance, would you have been considered very technical and conventional player? Were you a bit more swashbuckling and put it down and I'll play it how I feel it and I'll shape it how I feel in this moment? What kind of a player were you to Green?
0: Uh, natural. Um, I wouldn't say technical because... If you go back to these times, uh, teaching wasn't technical. Uh, they didn't have all the gadgets they had today and all the, the mm-hmm. people who have dedicated their life to teaching. Uh, the stuff my father told me was all very simple, and, uh, a bit like the, the PGA stuff, you know, the, the grip, the alignment, the stance, the posture. Uh, and as long as you had that and you had good hand in eye coordination, you, you were going to be a decent player. I also right. had a very good game. I mean, before the putting problems. And, and pitching and bunker player, I had a really good shotgun. So even on days that you maybe weren't at your best, mm. uh, I was still able to get around. But a natural swing rather than, I don't think I had any major swing thoughts. Right. Uh, so all, all really quite simple.
2: I know you've had some back trouble at times, like so many golfers of a generation. So do you get out and play much now? What's your relationship with the game now when you stand on a first tee?
0: I haven't played for uh, nearly two years because of the back problem, and I'm, I'm still having treatment on that. and And hopefully, I will be able to get out. But you know, as you get older, you're not know, as supple. Um, I'm a bit lazy. I don't train very much, although I should. But there's a, a lot of senior golfers do a lot of stretching exercises, and and they maintain that elasticity that you need mm. uh, as you get older. But I'm a member of some great golf clubs, and uh. I feel, I feel a bit guilty that I haven't made more of an effort to go out there and play. Mm. But then I see a lot of golf as well. So my time at home, I'm not sure I desperately want to run out and play golf, but I would like to go out when when the feeling takes me.
2: Yeah. I have memories of you working with Darren Clark and his game almost as a, I don't know, was it officially as a coach or just as a friendly observer? Did you work with many players on their games as a coach?
0: Uh, Gary Evans was the first one I worked with. Uh, Gary lived not very far from where I live now. And he came up to the house one uh, Christmas Eve and, and just said, I'm in a terrible mess. I haven't got any money. I've got two young kids. Uh, and he says, that My golf's going nowhere. He also had a serious hand injury. So I said, but we'll, we'll go out and hit some balls and, and, and see how we go from there. And, it was difficult to start with because of the injury to his hand. He had a four knuckle left hand grip, so I turned him into a fader of the golf ball to take away the fear of hooking. And he had four really good years. Uh, he won about four or five hundred thousand euro. He got himself back uh, in a position that he wanted to be in. And he was. He ended up being one of the easiest guys to coach because he was very much a natural player. Darren was the same. Um, it was at Carton House I first started uh, coaching Darren. Just walking down the range and he asked me a couple of questions and I, I gave him what I thought was honest answers. And he should have won that week. He, he actually made a mess in the last three holes at Carton House and I think he finished third. But it was a very difficult time in Darren's life, 2006, because mm. uh, Heather, at the age of 38, was, was failing fast. And it became more of a strong friendship. But uh, I spent many hours with him at tournaments and also at Queenwood, where he's a member uh, to the west of London. And we'd go up and spend six, seven hours uh, hitting balls there. But I felt that I could give him time, which uh, I think he needed. Uh, he needed someone alongside him with all the things that were going on. He had two young kids. Connor and Tyrone were eight and six years of age. And it grew from there. And I was with him all the way through to the end of the year he won the, the Open. Mm. Um, he also talked to other coaches, which I encouraged, because I don't think one coach should think he has all the answers. And he would spend quite a bit of time with Pete Cowan, um, who he'd worked with before I'd met him. But I think it was more the, the friendship and the... Uh, the time we spent together. That was all I could give down was time. I I couldn't be his full-time coach because I had another job. Mm. But I used to see him uh, at tournaments um, and at Queenwood, and and we'd play a few holes together as well, which I really enjoyed. And he was like a younger brother that uh, I didn't have. Um, And I was maybe like an older brother that he didn't have. I I don't know, but... Mm. We got them through a very difficult time. Um, the Ryder Cup uh, 2006 was traumatic. Because um, he only had two or three weeks. Uh, Ian Wosnam had said, look, I, I'm happy to give you a wild card. And Darren rang me up and he said, do you think my game's going to be good enough? And and I said, I don't have any worry about how good your game's going to be, but i worry about you, you know, after what you've gone through. And it's in Ireland. Um so that was a very difficult time, but uh, it was joyous uh, in the end because he he won three points out of three and and he started to rebuild uh, his career. Uh, he started to want to go out and practice, which he hadn't really done for two or three months um, and probably wouldn't have done had it not been the Ryder Cup. He probably would have just shut down and maybe come back the following year, but with a friend alongside him. I, I think he felt that was more like a crutch than anything else. Mm. And he was the easiest guy to teach in the world. I mean, he, if you blindfolded down Clark, he could hit the ball as good as anyone. I mean, he proved that in the first hole of, of the K-Club. You know, when he stepped onto that tee with Westwood, you, I mean, I wondered that this could come off the toe, uh, it, could, it could come off the heel and go through his legs, knowing what was in his mind. And, and we had spoken spoke at four o'clock in the morning because um, he wasn't sleeping properly. And, of course, he thumps it 305 yards down the fairway, pops it in the green, and knocks in the putt. <laughs> and uh, that that was a joyous moment and a very difficult time. Mm. Our, our relationship grew, and even up to last week at, at the seniors, uh, we talked every day there. And uh, he's just a really good pal, a pal I've been very fortunate to have.
2: Talent mm. to beat the band as well. Goodness me. How to. Talent to beat the band. Oh, uh,
0: I mean, there's some some things Darren could do that the very top players in the world couldn't do right now. Mm. And, and I think that somehow held him back because he became a, a bit of a perfectionist. You know, Darren could hit 10 forearms down the pin and then one would go 12 feet right and he'd say, what happened there? And I think, well, you're not capable of holding a that of 12 feet or I would laugh about it, but he was that good. Uh, Mm. When he was on, uh, he was pretty much unbeatable. And he should have won more, but he was a perfectionist and everything had to be perfect. And you know what this game is like? It's not a game of perfect. It's as simple as that.
2: No. So when you, and I I mean, I I, I suspect those four years from 85 to 89 were difficult in the extreme if you're dealing with the fallout of your father's death who you're incredibly close to and then you're watching your first career and first love almost um slip through your fingers a little bit uh were you at the turn of the 90s then worried about the next 40 years of your life and what am I going to do for money and is there everything going to be all right like was this a crisis point or were you fairly blasé about drifting into part two of your life
0: Oh, no, I, I certainly wasn't blasé about it. Um, and these four years were difficult. Uh, I played in a, a lot of pro-amps. Um, I started putting left-handed, oh. which, which was okay. Right. The, only th- the only thing was my dominant eye was my left and not my right. <laughs> so I didn't know where I was aiming, but the stroke was fine. And I, I, I got used to it. I got used to knocking in putts again at three or four feet. But you had to shoot 67 and 68 to make two or 300 quid. Nice. Um, and I, I did that for four years and I played a little bit in Scotland uh, on the Tartan Tour there and, and made some money, um, but not very much. But I knew there was a time when I had to say, right, that's the end of you playing. Mm. And what you have to do now is, is work out what you're going to do. And I always liked journalism. Uh, I was friends with some of the best journalists in London through my time uh, at Walton Heath. So John Juno was the editor of Sunday Express for 27 years, and he was like a second father to me. And I I got into that circle, and I I quite enjoyed journalism. I started to enjoy writing, uh, which I did for a couple of magazines, uh, a monthly magazine, but that was never going to give you a a career. So television, I was lucky. Uh, It came along along at just the right time, Mm. Uh, satellite television, and, and I got a break, uh, an unusual break, uh, to get into satellite television in Dubai. That was my first one. And it went from there because Sky Sports then had started. Um, well, they hadn't. Uh, Eurosport was the, mm. the sports channel of Sky at that time. And then I went to Screen Sport, who had the American golf and the European golf. And I did that with LXA. And the money was quite good. Uh, I was earning more doing that than I was earning playing golf. That's for sure. Mm. And then in 1992, Sky Sports started up, so I was tremendously fortunate, just in the right place at the
2: right time. Yeah. And the rest is history. Uh, by the way, listeners, I should point out to you, when he says he got an unusual break, he stole Brian Barnes's gig. But the less said about that, the better. You can look that up <laughs> yourself. Um, he's, he's been very kind to himself there. An Unusual gig. Yes, I'll do it, is uh, when the phone call for Brian came through. Um, actually, one la- and and by the way, this is the last question on the pudding. Um, it sounds like you tried everything. Did you give the old Jordan Spieth, eyes closed, close to the hole routine a try?
0: I did all that. Did, you did all that? Uh, did but if I, if I go out and putt left-handed, no, I can actually putt quite well. And,
2: okay.
0: And I putt as well as anyone with uh, the chest putter.
2: Right, interesting. But
0: uh, but that's banned. Using it on the chest, uh, it's not so easy when you move your hand away mm. uh, because there's a bit of wobble in the top of the club. But with that putter, yes, that's why I think it should be banned because. Mm. I'm a decent putter with a, a long putter, and I'm terrible w- with a, a normal putter.
2: Hmm. So we asked the listeners any questions for you and about Sky and the commentary and these last uh, God, what are we saying now? Thirty years, wow, mm. time flies. Uh, the most common question was, "Does he enjoy the Guardians, you and Murray?" Taking credit for his uh, commentary work after every tournament, I presume you see one of, the, one of the great joys every Sunday evening on Twitter after a golf tournament is you and Murray either responding to praise or criticism
0: <laughs> Well, we're both two very different people, although there's only w- one letter that changes uh, our names. Uh, he's a great wordsmith you uh, and Murray of the Guardian you're talking about yeah. And he thoroughly enjoys answering nice messages that somebody might say, I really enjoyed uh, the last day of the, the Open Championship. Uh, well done and whatever. And he'll reply to that and say, yeah, I thought it was pretty good as well, which I would never do. <laughs> and then there was, there was one uh, after I put the mic down at the, the Open this year from Glasgow. He said, I was, uh, I was an idiot, Scott. Um, who doesn't speak in a Scottish accent because you're ashamed of it? Um, it was horrible, but, and and you and so and you and so don't worry about that. I'll deal with that. And and it was something like you come down to the commentary box. I'll put the kettle on. I'll make you a cup of tea, and I'll stick this microphone right up. Dot <laughs> dot 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 dot. <laughs> and, and then the guy sends it back to me, or he sent one to me and said, "You're a disgrace." How actually? Because <laughs> I've done nothing but I think Ian quite enjoys it and and a lot of people get a lot of fun from it. So why change it?
2: Oh, listen, it's a personal (laughs) highlight, personal highlight. (laughs) So you, you'd uh, like people really take TV commentary and TV coverage seriously. And on the podcast, don't worry. We, as much as we will debate what's wrong with Rory at the moment, after big tournaments, we'll say, we'll have a, what did you make of the TV coverage section? And, the No Laying Up podcast will do the same in America. People really want good TV and a good broadcast. So you would have a good sense of why sometimes it works and why it doesn't, and the ebb and flow and the rhythm. And uh, does it come down to, I don't know, how many players are in contention when, you know, too many or too few, or you're reliant on the pictures, I'm sure. Uh, sometimes there's a lovely rhythm to a broadcast and it works and everything seems to be flowing. And other times, it just doesn't. It's either too slow or then someone, you know, shoots up the leaderboard and you haven't seen the first 15 holes they've played and suddenly they're a big part of the narrative and you're like trying to shoehorn them in a little bit. All of these variables that you can't plan for so much. So give us your sense because you've so much experience and you know the good days and the bad days and probably have a better sense of why they're good or why they're bad.
0: A lot of people say to me that you're, you're lucky to do the, the Masters and the PGA and the US Open, the Open Championship, the Ryder Cup. I treat Every tournament, I do the same. I do the same preparation for it. Um, the pictures give you the words. And if the pictures are a bit slower, then the commentary is going to be a little bit slower. Mm. I think the word you use, rhythm, is very important. And that depends an awful lot on who's alongside you. Uh, I was fortunate, uh, Bruce Critchley, alongside me for 20 years. A um, Tremendous command of the English language. And then I have Butch. Butch Harmon, uh, probably the world's greatest coach. Uh, Butch's time down on the, the range with these players kept him young. They gave him an extra 10 years in his television career. But Butch was different from, from Bruce. And I think what you have to realise is, is what they do. And, and you have to dictate the rhythm to, to who they are. Uh, If you had uh, Nick Faldo, and we had Nick Faldo in for the Open, Nick is different. He's different from Brooks. He's different from Bruce. He's more golf orientated. He's more of what's going on in the player's mind. So you give him enough space to deliver that, because I think that's what people want to hear. They don't really want to hear what I've got to say because I'm I'm keeping the program going. But if you've got someone like Nick Faldo alongside you, Nick Price was another one. Nick was an outstanding commentator. Um, I did a few things with him in the States and, and also down in Zimbabwe. Sergio Garcia is probably the best player we've had in. Uh, tremendous commentator. And again, I think you have to give them the space they need to deliver what they have and at what pace they deliver it at. So the rhythm often comes from that.
1: Mm.
0: It can also come, as you well know, from your production, uh, the, the voices in your ears. Uh, because they're controlling the speed of the pictures. So if you work closely with them, you probably have the right rhythm to the pictures. But every day is different. I think that's one of the joys of, of being a broadcaster. There's no two days are the same. It's a bit like being a golfer. Mm. You know, the, the day before you shoot 66 and everything's easy, and, and the next day you struggle to shoot 74. Um, that's the beauty of of broadcasting. Uh, each day is a totally different animal and and has to be a totally different start and finish it's not Mm. something you just continue from the day the day before because it will be different the players are different the scoring's different the weather's different the course is different
2: If I was to watch commentary of yours across five, six hours from 20 years ago would I notice a difference to what I watch now?
0: Yes, in the sense that that the first two years I was on Mourn it was just me um, that's just the way it was done then. Uh, you may have a guest in, you may have had a, a player in that finished his round and he'd come in for half an hour, but that would be more interview-like. I don't think you would notice a, a tremendous amount. Uh, golf was changed. Uh, it's much more statistical now than than it ever was uh, at the start of, of my, my television career. Um the thing I find with statistics is somebody writes them all down and if every commentator has the same statistics, they're saying the same things. I think the beauty of commentary, if you think back to Richard Benno, if you think back to Dan Maskell, Bill McLaren, Peter Ellis,
1: mm-hmm. uh,
0: James Hunt, all, all the really, what I would call, classy commentators, they commentated on the picture. They didn't do preparation work. They commentated exactly on what's on your screen and and that to me is commentary, blotting out statistics. I'm not sure everybody wants they're okay now and again, if they match the picture. Mm. But I find a lot of commentators now have iPads and, and computers and phones and, and they're logged into statisticians and out comes the stat when it's not probably the right time to put it in there.
1: Mm.
0: Uh, I find that's changed a lot and I'm sure that will be the future. Uh, I do have a lot of statistics, but I, I don't use many of them unless the pictures prompt me to use it.
2: Uh, one thing, so I, I, and and you could really speak of this because you're digesting pictures in real time constantly. So I do the Six Nations coverage on television here in studio, and what so the first year I did, I was a bag of nerves, and <laughs> what struck me watching the coverage afterwards is you know when you come back off half time or full time or at certain moments they'll show replays with the bits of music and you talk over them and all this kind of stuff is I was too nervous to take in those pictures and to notice the small little details or the smirk or the high five there and you'd watch it hours later at home not nervous obviously and think "I, I didn't even I didn't even see the fact that those two had done that little funny celebration together and I was talking over it at the time and it just struck me, God, the uh, significance of nerves. So, for you to do your job well, and really, like in real time, take in anything that could happen—a gesture, a smile, uh, whatever—you need to be just relaxed. You need to be watching as close to as you would be on your couch in terms of relaxed to take everything in. I would think, and to be, you—you you would need to enjoy it. I would think. Nerves, there's no place for nerves in your seat.
0: I think if you enjoy anything, you've got a good chance of being good at it. I think if you don't enjoy it, it doesn't matter how hard you work, that job is not mm. for you. Mm. I was told, that I had a producer for the first two years of my my television life who travelled with me to all the tournaments and we would do the broadcast, me and him, him in the production room. Then we would meet up for dinner and he would discuss all these things you're talking about, high fives and all that. But you missed. Yeah. And he would say, you know, this this part of the program you did really well. So keep that. But you need to get rid of this. This isn't good enough if you're going to make this your career. And he had a way of telling me these things without destroying you. You know, without just saying that was rubbish. Mm -hmm. He wouldn't, he would just say, You really need to get rid of that. And you need to find another way to do that. Mm. And when you said nerves, no, so a lot of it's adrenaline and, and mouth tends to work quicker than the brain at times as well. And you just said, look, less is more. And I think when you feel more comfortable mm. and you feel you can add to that chap giving it the high fives uh, at your coverage, then add to it. And you'll have the confidence and the experience to do that. But if you're unsure of it at the beginning, don't do it. Yes. Because there's nothing wrong... With silence. I mean, there's some commentators that are fearful of silence. When, if you put the right comment in, you can let it hang, and and then when the picture changes, you move on. That took a while to learn because mm. you felt as a commentator you needed to talk a lot. In actual fact, silence is is probably one of your best weapons, if not the best. Mm. So yeah. I wouldn't I wouldn't be too worried about what you missed, but you had the. You have to go back and watch it and think, well, the next time that happens, I'll be different.
2: Um, yeah. 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 Oh, and don't worry. My, my attitude in year one was don't be a hero. So I said very little, very few chances taken. It's <laughs> e- easier way in, I think. Don't be noticed is often a good uh, rule of thumb. I guess the other thing is you're, you're um, freakishly lucky in that you get the Tiger Woods era. You know, I yeah. mean, that's that's just once in a lifetime stuff, isn't it?
0: Yeah, uh, once maybe in five generations, uh, mm. as good as Tiger was. And, you know, sometimes you see a, a showreel of some of these great shots, and that showreel could be a day long because there were so many of them. And, and they all happened at exactly the time he would have wanted them to happen. You know, I, I, I go back to the, the pitch from the back of 16 at Augusta. You know, things are not looking good. He's, he's on the wrong side here, He's he's struggling to catch up with DeMarco and he chips in, and, and it has, it has the swoosh. Mm. Just for two or three seconds, just sitting there and then in. His second shirt in Canada, uh, his putt at the TPC of so all sorts of wonderful things that he, he did, stinger shots, and round trees. To have lived uh, in Tiger's era, uh, it's just so unbelievably fortunate because I would still say the greatest champion of all is Jack Nicholas with these 18 majors and, and so many seconds and so many thirds, that maybe the greatest golfer uh, mm. of all time was Tiger. And, and that's, that's a compliment to both players.
2: We were done to Padraig Harrington recently, and he had an interesting observation on Woods. When you mentioned the showreel there, it just uh, reminded me of it. He was saying that, you know, Woods ostensibly played a very conservative brand of golf a lot of the time. And then when he needed to, he pulled out the shots and Harrington's contention was we would have actually seen, you know, double or treble the length of showreel if Woods had needed to do it.
0: That's a very good point. I have no arguments at all with. Uh, I I look back at uh, High Lake Uh, when High Lake was all burnt up in 2006. I think he hit one drive. Might have been two, but I think it was one. And he just plodded his way around there. He looked at the golf course and thought, a four-iron's enough off the tee. Uh, it's going to run 60, 70 yards, so it's going to finish where my driver would finish anyway. I'm going to hit more favours with a four-iron than the driver. And he just plotted his way around there and and in the end took the title. He, mm. And that's what was talking about, that there was a lot of his golf, I wouldn't say defensive, that week it was, simply because of the way the golf course was, but he would just push himself into contention at two o'clock on a Sunday afternoon and then he would either switch on the afterburners, or he would anticipate others making mistakes because he was at the top of the leaderboard. Yes. And, and he would cruise on that way. Yeah? A, a brilliant golfing brain. I mean, yes, a wonderful golfer. Great patter, great chipper, great iron player, whatever, but a brilliant, brilliant golfing brain.
2: And Ewan, would you have any, had any extra access to Woods, either his practice or around tournaments through Butch,
0: I did do, um, before Tiger and I fell out, uh, which was a bit unfortunate. But uh, I used to get up at five o'clock at the same time as Butch and we'd go up the golf course because Tiger would always play at quarter past six, ten past six, and get nine holes in before the, the galleries. And he was an immaculate young man, uh, great at telling jokes, always smart, always tidy. And that kind of went with the way he played golf positional golf, very well aware of what you could and couldn't do in certain holes, and we would have we would have a great time over these nine holes. They'd be laughing and joking in there, and of course there'd be times when you'd be concentrating, chipping around each green, maybe six or seven different places, mm. but uh, I was most fortunate to be able to do that. And I, I used to keep my distance. I'd be maybe 10 or 15 yards away from Butch and, and Tiger because they were at work, I was just enjoying myself, basically. And uh, as I say, he was an immaculate young man. His mm. manners were outstanding.
2: That's nice. That's nice to hear, actually, because I'm sure you've read all the same books we have on, on Woods, the recent editions and the, the Jeff Benedict one recently does not paint him in a nice light. And I'm not even talking about the more headline grabbing behavior. It, in, just his day to day dealings with people uh, painted him in, in a terrible light. So it's actually quite nice to hear a different account of being around Woods.
0: Well, at that point, uh, he, he was you know, 21, 22, 23. Um, he's had a tremendously difficult life. Uh, only Woods will know how, how difficult that life is. But he's constantly in the spotlight. Uh, he was the most, he was the Muhammad Ali, wasn't he? He was the most famous sportsman throughout his career. Everyone knew who Tiger Woods was, mm-hmm. even if he didn't play golf. And I guess that wore him down a little. And he did get, he did get sharper. Uh, and then he made a few mistakes like we all do um, but I think everyone should be given a second chance and he was and he came back and, and did some amazing things but mm. the, the life, you've got to remember he turned pro in 96 and here we are in 2021 and at the beginning of this year he's, he's in the, the headlines for all the wrong reasons once again and there's rumours he had arguments before he got in the car, whether they're true or not I have no idea but um, he went through an awful long period with the, the eyes of the world on him. And and that's difficult. I'm sure that's tremendously difficult. He dealt with it very well for a long time. And and I think in the end, that probably got to him a little.
2: Yes. The, the fallout, I presume, is the comment when he was spitting and you called him out on TV. Is that, that the falling out?
0: Yeah, it was in Dubai and I was yeah. in... I was in the commentary booth with Harold Clark on the 12th green, final day. It was quarter to 11 uh, UK time, so pretty well into the final round, you know, a few holes left to go. And he had a bad butt at 12 and he got up and he, he spat four feet from the hole. And I just said something like that. You know, the inspiration he is not just to golfers, but to, to sportsmen around the world. There's times when he's, he's arrogant and he's petulant, and what he's just done there is about as low as it gets. It was words to that effect, almost exactly that. And Howard was going to come in, and I switched his mic off because I didn't want him to get involved, which I knew was going to be the fallout. Uh, and I went through three months of hell after that. I believe he got fined by the, the European tour. But had I said nothing and I'd come home, my bosses would have been quite right in coming up to me saying, Why are we paying you? This guy spits all over the green. There's three people, there's three groups behind him trying to win a golf tournament. And he's spitting four feet from the hole, and you said nothing. Mm. So, so I hate these moments. Uh, it's a bit like Tyrrell Hatton uh, at the beginning of his career. I saw Tyrrell before anyone knew who Tyrrell was. And I thought, This guy is special. He's a really good golfer. And one day up in Aberdeen at the Scottish Open, he had a chance to win that, which would have got him in the top 60 of the race to Dubai. It would have got him an open place. And he's throwing clubs about and moaning and shouting. And I saw a bit of myself in that, because I was a bit like that as a kid. I was a bit fiery. And I knew it didn't work. And here he was with all these things on the line, and he's worried about a putt lipping out. Well, only he's worried about it. Nobody else. And I just said something like, I don't know what you're thinking at home, but this is becoming quite tiresome. Mm. And I went through hell for a month or two after that as well. Not as bad as the woods one, but, but I, all I'm doing is I'm, I'm saying, this guy needs to stop this because he's a really good golfer. And if he continues doing this, he's going to throw all the talent yes. and, and, and the gifts that he has out the window. That's really what I was trying to say.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Ewan, explain to us what does going through hell mean? What do you mean by that? And why did you go through hell for three months after the Woods fallout?
0: Well, people can get your email address. They can get all your other stuff. I don't think I was, I might have been on social media. Then I only do Twitter. I don't do anything else. Um, but there was some terrible stuff. that You know, when you come to the States, we'll have you and all this stuff. And and Sky were very good. They understood what was going on as well. And it blew over. Like all these things, they blew over. But the thing was, Woods was was the king. You know, yeah. he, he was the very top man. And, and whereas I was very happy to watch all of his golf, I wasn't happy about that one because I think he was wrong. And, mm. and quite simply, if he hadn't done it, it wouldn't have been said.
2: And presumably, one way or another, maybe directly, who knows, you, uh, it was made clear to you that there was a, a cool wind blowing from the woods camp in your direction.
0: Yeah, there was. Um, his manager uh, didn't do anything to me, although I know who he is. But what helped more than anything was Tiger walking past on the range and, and his eyes straight ahead and, and not so much as a good morning because much as I admired him as, as a player in his younger years, I admired him very much as a person.
2: Right. And that's after a lot of early mornings where I'm sure there was a hello you and how you, you and a bit of time spent together.
0: Yeah, and, and Tiger was a great joke teller, which he obviously got off Butch, because Butch was probably the best joke teller out mm. there. Mm. And and Woods was very good at telling them, and he enjoyed telling them. And it was good fun. And, and there'd be, there wouldn't be filthy jokes. they would be jokes about all sorts of things, yeah. but normally very funny. And I remember walking on that range in the steely glare and, and nothing. I felt I don't know, disappointed, maybe.
2: Yeah.
0: but Maybe a little hurt as well.
2: Yeah. Of course, you would feel hurt. And uh, if he was to walk by on the range last year, would there be a nod, or is it still fairly steely eyes ahead?
0: Um, I would think the latter. I would think oh. with steely eyes ahead. Um, I, I, did it because I had to do it, and and I've had to do it on two or three occasions where players haven't maybe, maybe behaved properly, where they snapped a the club over their, their knee. You have to remember that the parents with young children are watching it. And if you say nothing, mm. you know what kids are like. They'll think, well, I, I could do that. Yeah, But if, if you state that this is not the way forward and, and this is something that will, will hold you back if, if, if you want to be a decent golfer, um, a golf professional or a professional golfer, that this is going to hold you back. So you, you, you need not do it. And I did get a letter from, um, from a dad whose son was 11 and uh, when that wood spit went on the on the screen, and just saying thank you, you know because everyone adores woods, all these kids adore woods, he's their idol, they all want to be tiger woods, but pointing out that that wasn't the way forward hmm. has helped me enormously with my son
2: I'm sorry to hear that, Ewan, because i mean i <laughs> look, this is me saying this, I'm not putting words in your mouth, but frankly, I would think to myself, uh, Tiger Woods of anyone who's made some apologies and made some mistakes in his life understands that forgiveness is an important thing. We're all human. We all make mistakes. In this case, you were doing your job. It wasn't personal. I would have thought seven, eight years on, you know, we can let that one go. But that just shows, if you're cut from the woods camp, you are cut. That's game over.
0: Well, and also I don't see so much of it. Of course. Uh, either. Um, Obviously, over the last 18 months, I haven't seen her. Yeah. Um, and uh, probably three or four years before that, you know, Butch was no longer coaching him, so that link wasn't there. Fair enough. Um, but it, it, it hurt a little. I have a picture of, of Tiger that was drawn by an artist uh, who was a professional girlfriend, the ladies to Rebecca Hudson. And she, painted, she was a brilliant artist, and she, she crayoned a, um, a portrait of Tiger and I took it over to Tiger and they signed it and it, it sits and it's got pride and place in the, in the house and it's Tiger in 2000 you know the the year he just spread-eagled everybody including the sport <laughs> uh, but it sits there and I admire I okay. it because I look I look back at the times that I, I had with them and, and they were very enjoyable times mm,
2: I can imagine uh, one last thought for you a few people were in touch asking me to ask you because Again, and, and you wear your knowledge very lightly, by the way, in commentary. I love as a matter, just as an aside, when there's a bad swing and you come in before the expert beside you and you diagnose what went wrong in the swing in a line. I think that's great. I, I love that. And so, cl- you know, you, you wear your knowledge lightly, but you'll, you'll see what went wrong. And I think, that's, I think that's super as well. But therefore I'm curious for your thoughts on Rory, because there'd be a growing contingent now, I notice of our listeners, who would be of the opinion that like, this guy's great, he owes golf nothing, he owes nobody anything. It's a legendary career already. But their honest sense would be the odds now on him not winning a major again have grown considerably. And that would have been unthinkable 18 months, two years ago, given his age. Whereas now people are saying, sometimes you lose it. It's just harder and harder to get it back. What's your read on where Rory is?
0: Well, first of all, the analysis of the swing, if you fit enough F- bad shot, you actually know the feelings uh, <laughs> and the emotions, okay. So that's where that comes from. Okay. Rory, I think, a little bit like Tiger uh, in the sense that the, we put so much focus on Rory. Uh, our expectations uh, of Rory are sky high mm. when you think it's what seven years since he, he won a major. He is not in the same class as a wedge player as his peers. And, and that's where I stand with McElroy. Driving long irons, mid irons, he's a good chipper. He's a decent bunker player. He's just not good enough from 60 yards to 140. And if you look at Morikawa, who has won two majors out the last seven, if you look at Dustin Johnson, having won the Masters in November, second major for him, they work on their, their scoring shots. When you think how far the ball goes now, how many second shots does Rory have between 60 and 150 yards, let's say? He has a lot. He has a high percentage. You go back to 2011, which is where I think the problem started. I watched his drive off the first tee. It was still rising when it got over the bunker that people were, were hitting the t shirts into. He was maybe 115 from the pin. Long, loopy hook, three putts. Everyone looks at the t shot at 10. They look at the collapse on the back nine, the t shot at 13. Uh, they missed put putt at 12. It started at the first. If McElroy had been sharper with, with his wedge, he would have got off to at least a power start. Then he's got a power five that he can reach with driving a six iron. Because he takes the five at the first, he doesn't get the four at the second.
2: You're talking. Be- uh, you're, you're talking to here, presumably. You and are Yeah, yeah 2011.
0: Yeah. Yeah. as far back as that, <clears throat> everyone's talking about it now. McIlroy's wedges are just not good enough with the people he's playing alongside. Um, and as I say, he's got many of them because of his gifts off the tee of, of long and, and relatively straight driving, given the length he hits it. Yeah, his scoring shots should be the wedges, and they're not. He puts too often from 35, 40 feet after a wedge, whereas you get someone like Morikawa, he's exactly the right distance, so he's not going to be that far off line. So he's not having the 35-footers, he's having the 10 and 12-footers.
2: Yeah.
0: And, and that's that's the problem, I, I think, yeah. with McElroy today. If you look at his follow-through with a wedge, it's the same as the drive. So the club's getting slung, which means with loft, it's going to turn. You ever rarely see McElroy try and cut a wedge into a right-hand pin, um, and I, I think if he sharpens up in that department, which I don't think really should take too long, um, that should that should be something he's more than capable of, of achieving in a short space of time. And he goes out with the same wedge game as the others. I think you'll find McElroy on his day, will be. That's uh, how good I think he is.
2: Yeah, because on, on the coverage uh, at, at uh, Royal St. George's, again, it, it was, uh, I think it might have been as, as, as short in as one fifteen and pin was on the right and there was a little left to right breeze and everyone was just fading it in on the breeze and letting it trickle down to the pin and, and Rory started right and missed right and had to come in off the green had to chip onto the green from the right and short-sighted himself and Laura Davies in in a very genuine way and on the commentary just half said aloud this is so strange he's such a good player this is just so strange and that was my thought because I'm far from a a professional golfer and yet I think most of us would feel more comfortable with a shorter club in our hands than a driver and he can do in my book Mm -hmm. the harder thing and yet Mm -hmm. the wedges I don't know, like we've seen him try the more sawn-off finish at times. He's clearly working on it. He snapped a club last year. I mean, I think that was an example of just how frustrated he must be. That suggested to me he is, practicing with the wedges and was so frustrated he cracked a club because he thought, well, this practice yeah, I know isn't the, paying off.
0: I know the shot you're talking about, yeah. so second to the second. Yeah. Um, which was the easiest shot in the world. Middle of yeah. the green, a little bit of cut, spin, the wind yeah. will do the rest for you. Uh, and it didn't happen once, it happened twice for them. Um, and later on in the round. The other thing with with Rory I find is that if you look at his his head position at impact, his chin almost sits on his right shoulder. Now that would be Rory being a small kid trying to hit the ball a long way and that would be built into his game very early on. Uh, With that head position and, and loft, it's very difficult to start the ball left, which is why Rory, when he draws the ball, is, is as good as anyone. It's natural. If he sends it down the right centre of the fairway, it's got a draw of no more than two or three yards. And I often think he should maybe just continue to pitch like that rather than try and have a different action for that shot because the rest is always going to be with him. It's been there from a very young age and as I say, it probably comes from him trying to hit the ball a bit further as a seven, eight, nine year old. But if you look, his chin sits on his right side and on his right shoulder and it's very difficult then to start the ball left so all of those who are saying he needs to learn to fade the ball in there that's going to be extremely difficult for McElroy because he's a natural golfer with a natural shape I think what he should be trying to do is work on the wedges with the shape he has and he's good enough to fade one in there now and again because it's not a power shot his head's not going to work backwards that's the way I see McIlroy, but I see the only problem with him is that yardage, sixty to one hundred and fifty. If he can improve that, he'll have eighty percent more birdie putts that are holeable, rather than eighty percent he seems to have right now, where he's trying to get the ball close.
2: Uh, you and Murray, it's been such a pleasure. I mean, you're a fountain of knowledge. It was it was great talking to you. I guess you're into watching your thirtieth year with Sky next year, so. Um... Congratulations on an amazing career. Enjoy the Ryder Cup. We'll all be watching and uh, we might nag you for an interview again in 18 months and see what's going on in the world of golf. But it really has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much.
0: Lovely. I'd look forward to that and thank you for today.